Well, thank you, Sunshine Singers. Today we begin a new message series in the book of James, or the letter that was written by James that's, that found its way into our completed Bible. And I'm particularly excited about this sermon series, looking forward to this study together, because this book, the book of James, is so easily applicable to everyday life. James reminds his readers of what true faith in Christ looks like in day-to-day living. So that's our purpose, that's our aim as we jump into God's Word together in the book of James. We want to know what living faith in Christ looks like. What are some things that distinguish a follower of Christ from someone who doesn't follow Christ in the world? How does one live and think and act as a follower of Jesus Christ? Living faith. That's the title of this series together because I think as we work through this letter that James wrote, we'll see some exhortations to living faith, genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And as we begin this journey together this morning, I believe that we'll see from God's Word that living faith submits to Jesus rejoices in Jesus and trusts in God. Living faith submits to Jesus, rejoices in Jesus, and trusts in God. I want to invite you to turn with me now to this letter, the letter of James that is near the end of your Bible after the letter to the Hebrews, before First and Second Peter and First and Second and Third John, Jude, and Revelation, and if you're not careful, you'll miss all of those other short letters after James before Revelation because they're all so short. Be reading from James chapter one, beginning in verse one this morning. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, James starts this letter, like most letters in that time were started. He began by stating who the author was and stating who the recipients are and giving a short greeting. He doesn't tell us much about his specific identity. He simply says, James. James. Leading us to believe that he must have been a fairly prominent person in the life of the New Testament church to 
simply describe himself this way with simply his first name, no other information, no son of so-and-so, no brother of so-and-so. And there are several Jameses mentioned in the New Testament. A couple of them uh, were very prominent in the life of the early church. One was James, the son of Zebedee and the brother of John. He was one of the 12 disciples. Jesus first called to be his followers. Another prominent James was James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now that first James, James the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve, became the first of the original disciples to be martyred for his faith. He was martyred in A.D. 44, and we can read that account in Acts chapter 12. And because this letter was believed, is believed to have been written after A.D. 44, sometime Shortly after AD 44, that sort of rules that James out, right? If you're dead, you can't, you can't write a letter. At least normal dead people can't do that. So that rules James, the son of Zebedee, out. Now, I know what, what some of you are thinking already because I can, I can see it on your faces. You're, you're thinking that perhaps another James, a James that particularly well-known in this particular community, James Colbreth. Maybe he, maybe he wrote this letter. But don't let, don't let that white head of hair fool you. James was not around in the first century A.D. And believe it or not, was around in the second. Believe, believe it or not. James Colbert, by most accounts, by most accounts, although he, his account is certainly different, we heard that earlier, by most accounts, he's not even a senior adult, which is what we are recognizing and honoring on this day. Short side note, a couple days ago, my wife and I were sitting down somewhere, I don't even remember where, and we were talking, and she looked at me and she said, I think you've got a gray hair. So later at home, I looked and I reported back to her. I said, I don't think that's a gray hair. I think that's, that's a gold hair. And she, and she said something like, well, you believe what you want to, but the truth is the truth. But James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote this particular letter. That's what most scholars believe. That makes the most sense to us. James, the, the brother of Jesus... Son of Joseph and Mary, one who rejected the claims and the teachings of Jesus, resented Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry, but we know in the New Testament that he later placed his faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus. In fact, he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15, we we read about his contribution at the Jerusalem Council, which was a council among churches, among believers in that day, determining to what extent Gentile believers or Gentiles who wanted to follow Christ had to become like Jews. Now this particular James, James the brother of, of Jesus, doesn't give us much information here about his specific identity in this particular letter, but he does leave us right away with a very important description of the identity of Jesus 
and his role, James's role, in light of the identity of Jesus. Look back at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Living faith recognizes the position of Jesus. Living faith recognizes the position of Jesus. Interestingly, in this short letter, Jesus is not explicitly mentioned very many times, but he is mentioned just enough to to communicate the centrality of Jesus and the necessity of faith in Jesus and rightly understanding Jesus in order to have the type of living faith that James is describing. So it's not mentioned very much, but, but what does this James have to say about the identity of Jesus? One, he says that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you don't say that you're a servant of God and someone else unless that other person is also God. To do so would be to put someone else on equal footing and of equal importance with God. So James is indirectly saying that that he is a servant of God and He is a servant of Jesus who is also God. And the Son of God, God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, according to God's word, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him, through Christ, and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church, is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, Jesus Christ might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness, all of Him, dwell in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is God, and Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. Notice how, again, how James describes himself, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that Jesus is Lord. He's master, he's ruler, and goes even beyond that to describe himself as his servant, a servant of this Lord Jesus. Now, how many of you have a sibling or siblings? Many of you, perhaps most of you, some of you have multiple siblings, multiple brothers or sisters. How many of you have ever willingly described yourself as a servant or a slave, which is actually what James is communicating, of your sibling. If you did, it was, I'm sure, in a negative connotation for the way that they were treating you. Because, of course, you have not wanted to be a servant or a slave of your sibling. You just don't do that. We don't don't act like that. 
And yet that's how James describes himself. It would have made sense for James to describe himself as the brother of Jesus. Perhaps that would have really circulated his letter fast and given some credence and credibility to what it was he was saying. After all, he was one who grew up with and who lived with and was a blood relative of the now famous Jesus of Nazareth. By the way, that sort of practice was not uncommon in the ancient world, particularly in the centuries following the life of Christ, for someone to to write under the name of someone else, which is why we have so many false gospels today, like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas and other writings that are dated after the first century, after the time of Christ, after the the spread of the early church and written under the name of someone else in an effort to to gain an audience for what they have to say with the hopes that perhaps eventually their particular writings could be recognized as Scripture. But James didn't do that. He didn't use his position or his proximity to Jesus as leverage for what he had to say. He simply described himself as a servant of Jesus. Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is Christ. He is Christ, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, one through whom God would redeem all the scattered children of God, not just the Jews, but all the scattered children of God, according to John chapter 11, verses 51 and 52. James doesn't say a lot about his own identity, but he does tell us some very important things about the identity of Jesus Christ. Living faith submits to Jesus by recognizing the position of Jesus. Now look back at specifically what James had to say, the specific writing that he gave. Verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy, friends, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now that that sounds quite strange. That's odd. That's like, it would be like saying, consider it pure joy whenever you face cancer. Consider it pure joy whenever you're struggling to overcome an addiction. Consider it pure joy when you're facing discomfort. Consider it pure joy when you're facing death. Consider it pure joy when you have a rebellious child. That sounds crazy. And in and of itself, it is crazy. But that's, that's not the point that James is making. That's, that's not where he finishes. Look back at the text. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. According to the Word of God, trials are reason for joy because they provide an avenue for growing in Christ. 
Trials are reason for joy because they provide an avenue for growing in Christ. Trials in and of themselves are not joyful experiences. Challenges, difficulties, sufferings, persecutions in and of themselves are not something that that anyone in the right mind would look forward to. But they provide opportunity, a circumstance, a reason for those who know Jesus Christ, who have placed faith in Christ to grow in their walk with Jesus Christ. Trials test a believer's faith. They test a believer's faith. It's natural when we face difficulties in life, often without any warning, to ask why. Why is this happening? Why am I experiencing this? And the truth is, often we don't have a good answer. We can't come up with a good answer. These circumstances do provide opportunity to grow in a walk with Christ which we would not otherwise have. Trials test the believer's faith and tests of faith produce perseverance. Tests of faith produce perseverance. Many have walked through trials as believers and come away with strengthened faith as a result of that experience. And I have no doubt if we ask some of our seniors on the stage behind me to share about some of the challenges and the difficulties and the circumstances that they have experienced or gone through in life, and they would all be able to share a number of things. But I'm also willing to bat that we would also hear stories of strength and faith and perseverance and endurance and, and growth and trust and the sovereign plan and purposes of the Lord Jesus Christ. Trials test the believer's faith. Tests of faith produce perseverance. And perseverance leads to maturity. Perseverance leads to maturity. This is the aim, the goal, the reason that we can rejoice even in the face of trials because through those circumstances, God matures His children. God grows His children in their faith in in Jesus Christ. After all, this is what this whole Christianity thing is all about. Being a follower, a disciple, a student of Jesus Christ. And as a disciple, we desire to become more like the one that we're following, more like our Lord, more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. A process that begins the moment that we trust in Jesus as Lord and as Savior, but a process that doesn't end until the Lord returns and ushers in a new age of salvation in which we'll all receive glorified bodies and spend eternity in the presence of the King. But even so, we still strive for that maturity, that perfection, that completeness. That's still our aim, that's still our goal, even though we know we won't attain it in this life. We strive to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew chapter 5. 
verse 48. And the good news for us is that as we face these trials, as we face these difficulties, these challenges in this life, God promises to give generously to those who trust in Him. God gives generously to those who trust in Him. Look back at James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable, In all they do. The God of Scripture is a generous God. A God who gives us far more than we deserve. God of all creation. The one who holds the world in his hands. Remember that song? He's got the whole world in his hands. That song? I'm going to quit singing now because I have a microphone on. (laughs) But that God, the God that has the whole world in His hands, the God of all creation, offers to help us, to assist us, to give generously to us. If only come to Him in faith and ask Him. Isn't scold us when we come to Him asking for His help? He's not bothered by our prayers for help. He doesn't look on us and insult us for our deficiency and dependence on Him. He's a God who desires us to come to Him. And He is a God who gives generously to those who trust in Him. You know, there appears to be a lot of wisdom in this room today. We've got a number of our senior adults with us today. And a number of senior adults that are with us every Sunday. But some have particularly been able to make an effort to be here who cannot be here all the time because this is a special day that we set aside and that we honor them as senior adults in our church. Oftentimes with age comes wisdom. But age is not the source of true wisdom. God is the source of wisdom. God is the source of wisdom. And He desires for His children, for His people who are experiencing things in life to come before Him, to come to Him, to run to Him, and to approach Him boldly through the bloodshed of Jesus Christ, knowing that He gives generously to those who trust in Him. God is our refuge and strength, never present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth give way, though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Church, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3, 7. And 11. In trials, the people of God turn to God for help. And God responds to the prayers of the faithful. God responds to the prayers 
of the faithful. Look back at verses 6 through 8. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Church, biblical faith is more than simply expecting to receive what we ask from God. There's two types of people that are clearly contrasted in verses 6 through 8. On one hand, those who exercise unwavering, unwavering confidence, trust in the Lord. And on the other hand, those that are characterized by doubt. The description of those that are characterized by doubt, those are those that have conflicting loyalties, always torn between, between God and something else. And it's sort of like Jesus' caution in Matthew chapter 6 about serving two masters. The example he gave was God and money. But those who doubt are, are torn. If no fixed faith, no fixed direction, no sense of fixed loyalty to God. They have a divided heart, unstable, double-minded in all they do, always oscillating between belief and unbelief, like a wave that goes up and then comes down, shifts to the left and shifts to the right. Pray to the latest difficulty and the latest doctrine. Whatever sweeps their way. Doubting the goodness of God is is dishonoring to God. And I want to be careful here. Because this passage of scripture is not saying that, that every instance of doubting or every instance of questioning is wrong. In fact, the Psalms are filled with examples of the psalmist asking God why he is doing or allowing something he is doing or allowing. At the end of the day, the Psalms communicate clearly trust in the ways of God, trust in the goodness of God, trust in the plans of God, even when we don't understand them. In the same way, living faith trusts in God, even when we don't understand His ways. Does it mean that our faith will always be sufficient or adequate? But when it's not, we, like the Father in Mark 9, 24, pray to the Lord, I believe, Lord, help me overcome my unbelief. Living faith submits to Jesus, rejoices in Jesus, and trusts in God. I want to leave you with two, two applications of the truths of this passage this morning. Number one, pursue growth in Christ more than comfort in the world. Pursue growth in Christ more than comfort in the world. Health and comfort. Those are the American way, the American dream. No matter how much 
stuff we have, no matter how immune we may feel to life's struggles and trials, they will come. Discomforts will come. Trials will come. Disease will come. Death will come. But even so, every one of those opportunities, according to God's word, is an occasion for joy for those who know Jesus Christ because they provide an opportunity, an avenue to grow in faith with Jesus Christ. And nothing, nothing is more satisfying than walking with Jesus Christ. Nothing is more satisfying than knowing Jesus Christ. Nothing is more satisfying than growing in Jesus Christ. Pursue growth in Christ more than comfort in the world. And lastly, run to the Lord in the midst of trials. Run to the Lord in the midst of trials. Some of you are facing storms today. And we all know that if not today, it could be tomorrow. If not tomorrow, it may be next week. If not next week, it will come soon enough. And run to the Lord in the midst of those trials because He is a good God who gives generously to His children. Living faith submits to Jesus, rejoices in Jesus, and trusts in God. One of the gifts of God to His people is the church a community of believers that come alongside each other and walk through life together, even face the trials of life together. And this morning, I want, I want us to take a moment to, to care for one another, to pray for one another, to intercede on behalf of one another. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask you if you would be so bold, if You'd be so transparent to say, I'm going through a trial today. I'm facing a difficulty today, be it a family crisis, be it illness, be it grief, be it the loss of a job, be it whatever. No need to say more. If you're facing a trial today, then I'm going to ask you to stand up where you are. And as a church, as those who are gathered in this place to make up Meadowbrook Baptist Church today, I want us to, to gather around these individuals and to pray for them, to lay hands on them, to take a moment simply to, to pray for them. No doubt in a room like this, there are dozens, dozens who are experiencing trials today. If that is you, then I want to invite you to stand up now. Stand up now say, I'm going through a trial, I'm going through a difficulty, or someone in my family is going through a difficulty, then you, you stand up in church. As you see individuals stand up, then I want to invite you to, to gather around them. Gather around them and to pray for them. So it's not too late to, to stand up, to acknowledge that you're going through a struggle. Church, as you see individuals like this, then, then you gather around them, then you lay hands on them. And as... Bob continues to play. I want you to take a moment and to pray for these individuals and then I'll voice a prayer to conclude this time. Let's pray together.